Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. Sheena, today's interview is like no other interview we've ever had on Reveal. Very true. We were really lucky to speak with Hang Black. She's a revenue leader at Juniper Networks. But more importantly, she's really used her own personal experiences, her own personal story to pave her way in the workplace. And I think we both found our conversation with her so, so powerful. And I think you as a listener listening to this will probably feel the same way. I completely agree. This is one of the few interviews that one I've, I've listened to a couple times since we recorded it. Because it gave me a lot to process and it really gave me a new perspective of how to have more powerful conversations, both in my personal life and professionally. And I think my favorite thing about Hang is that she's sharing her story with the entire world. She's actually not only a revenue leader, but now an author. She just published a book called Embrace Your Edge. You can find the link to the book to get your own copy in the show notes. Um, And it's all about navigating your way in the workplace, particularly as a female immigrant. So I think, you know, there are few stories like this that are public that you can learn from, that you can reference. Um, and, and this is this is a great one. And you don't need to be an immigrant or a woman or a person of color to enjoy the book. Uh, I have not read it yet, but it is, uh, you know, on its shipping path to me. I ordered it after we talked to her after it released. So definitely worth checking out. And let's go hang with Hang. Hank, welcome to Reveal. We are so excited to have you here today. You, you currently work at Juniper. Can you tell us a little bit more about your role and, and what you're currently focused on? Certainly. I have the privilege of leading global revenue enablement here at Juniper Networks. I've been here for about two years, and my mission is really to supercharge the performance of the company's Salesforce services and partner communities. Um, and we're really looking at more than just sales enablement. We're now looking at revenue enablement, anything that directly touches our customer, rather whether it's through um, inside sales, our, our, our sales professionals, our partner account managers, our um, global services team, our technical, um, our technical sellers as well. So um, it's a big remit that I am very, very proud to be able to lead for a wonderful company. As far as what we're working on, um, you know, I look at sales enablement as translating English to English and making sure that our our messaging lands with our customers. And our job is to kind of look around corners, look at where the industry trends have been. Um, there were already a few things that were happening before COVID, which has only been exasper- exacerbated. Um, so we were already preparing for more virtual world and we were able to pivot quickly. And now we're looking at how do we evolve and prepare for 2021 where there will probably be much more dependence on flexibility with hybrid spaces and proliferation of AI for automation and operations. So uh, evolution and growth of sales. 
it really is such an interesting time to be in enablement and this really transformational time where you are at that center of helping your team to evolve and adapt to what's needed in the world um, mm-hmm. must be a really, really interesting time for you. It's unfortunate, um, the, the shape that the world is in. However, um, as a child of, of adversity, I kind of look at, at as an opportunity for, um, for increased, uh, you know, speed of evolution and innovation. So, you know, if it wasn't for COVID, I probably wouldn't be writing my book, but you know, you've got to take advantage of what you have. I've never been more simultaneously, um, bored and busy at the same time. So it's a great time to transition and chaos is sort of my jam. Bored and busy is a pretty good way to put, uh, put life for a lot of folks, I think right now. Um, I love that outlook and we will get into that book in a moment, but there is something that is very intriguing that I've learned about you, which is that your nickname at work is Black Ops uh, and it's a source of pride for you, Hang. So I'd love to know how did you come up or you know, where did that nickname come from uh, and why it means so much to you? Well, first and foremost, my, my father was military. And so I have always had an appreciation and fascination for the discipline of, of, of special operations units, um, just how targeted, specific, and agile they are. Um, I was in industry for 20-something years in both engineering and marketing before I ventured off into um, into my own consulting agency. So in that agency, I did a lot of consulting around basically anything sales or marketing related. If it's you know sales ops, sales enablement, field marketing, marketing ops. And what I got really, really good at was kind of diagnosing the situation and not just problem solving, but problem finding. So, you know, I would just, I would talk about it as um, that when I would get interviewed for job roles, they would ask me, well, what can I do for them? And I would say, well, first of all, I need to lay the patient on the table. I need to understand what the condition is, where are you needing to go? What do we rip and replace? What do we augment? Um, and where do we just start from scratch? And I got very good at laying out strategic frameworks that were very targeted to what the outcomes were. And my clients all, you know, loved playing on my name of, uh, uh, my last name of black. And then, um, having my very operational focused mind, um, they just combined it and called it black ops and, and I love it and I carry it with me. As you should, that's a, a great nickname. And I can tell by the way you described it, how methodical you are in both your approach and the way that you described the nickname. There's a lot of, uh, commonality there. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'd like to say that my, um, my diversity is a privilege because it gives me a lens with which to kind of always take the outsider's perspective. Um, I am not confined by status quo. And I think it's a, it gives my clients, my customers, um, a competitive edge. So I'm constantly asking my team to look at diversity and draw upon their, their, their background. And I'm not just talking about race and gender, but depth of experience and problem solving. Um, and their, you know, is it, is it age, tenure, uh, religion, gender doesn't matter, but every part of that gives you an experience that you can bring to the table and just think differently. Speaking of diversity, Devin, you mentioned earlier Hang's book that she's currently writing a book. Um, and, you know, one of the topics I think that you touch on in this book is is the immigrant perspective. And that's something that's also very near and dear to my own heart. I come from a family of immigrants, um, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and so does my, my husband. And, and we have a strong history there. And your book is specifically about immigrant women in the workplace. So I'd 
love to hear more about what are you writing about and what motivated you to write it? Well, um, I think that any minority has unique obstacles. And then when you're a double, triple, quadruple minority, those, those obstacles just compound. And what I have learned was the, the road was just much harder for me than it was necessary to be. And it was also because I didn't know what the rules were and even well-meaning people couldn't help me. So I called it navigating in the dark. If you think about it, when you are a new college grad, and everyone is at the base of the mountain and everyone is starting to climb, you assume that everyone has the same conditions. But what if some people have a jet to the top of the mountain? What if people, some people have a helicopter? What if some people have Sherpas and what if people have gear that you weren't even aware of? What if you were navigating in the dark and you don't even know it because you don't know if you're blind if you can't see? So, I try to, in the book, provide um, ways to level the playing field. So I'm sharing 30 years worth of experience, curating resources, books, um, learnings from conferences, executive coaching, to provide this for, for women and immigrants behind me that don't have access to that because representation and inclusion is not enough. You need that access. So my hope is that in reading this, women who have been unseen, minorities who have been unheard, feel empowered to celebrate their unique identity, but not to, not to merge with the status quo, not to try to follow formulas that were never, that won't work for us because they were never written for us. And they may be very well intended, but without access to that information, choice, and voice, the journey can be a really unclear tangle of overwhelming obstacles. And I want people to rise on their own with their own vision of success. So my motivation is simple. I want to pave a path by offering a trail map of myths, pitfalls, and tools that will hopefully make it easier for the next generation than it was for me. That sounds like such a wealth of knowledge and something that I wish I could have read as the recent grad getting started in my career, there are so many things that are not public knowledge. Mm -hmm. And especially, you know, coming from a family that was not necessarily in business or had not grown up here, you don't necessarily know how to navigate all of that. You don't know what's even available to you, as you mentioned. So um, providing that based on your own personal experiences is so tremendous. I can't wait for this book to come out. What is the, what is the title of the book? What is it called? Well, I'm that's stealth right now. So stay ah. tuned. So if you're on LinkedIn, um, follow hashtag hang with hang. And uh, I, I leak out an excerpt of a per chapter per week. So I think we're now on chapter four. This week we'll release an excerpt of chapter five. Um, but, you know, I really want to I really want to share with people that it's not the book is not meant to badger anyone or to demonize anyone It's written for those who didn't inherit access, but who've clawed their way to earn every step forward. And they're just stuck. And it's also written for those in power who want to attract these scrappy people with a, you know, who belong in this diverse talent pool and possess an innate entrepreneurial spirit. So it's meant to be, um, it's meant to crack open very uncomfortable conversations, things we we, we as minorities may know about, but, uh, but the allies that who wish to help us don't. So it's meant to, to be a tool to open conversations of mutual understanding. Yeah, I am uh, obviously coming from a much different background. And I'm very excited to read it because as someone who does strive to, you know, I, I want to consider myself an ally, right? And as other, I'm sure, you know, white males that dominate sales and dominate tech, 
there are folks that, uh, you know, want to know how to have that conversation. How can I be more empathetic? And I think a lot of, uh, I'll speak for myself, I don't know always what I don't know. And mm-hmm. reading something like this would help me, you know, understand Sheena better and understand as I'm hiring people and as we're scaling the team, you know, what are better questions to ask? What are assumptions I should stop making? So uh, mm-hmm. coming from a totally different perspective, I am thoroughly excited I was actually on LinkedIn trying to figure out the name on your, I was on your page trying to figure out the name of the book right now. So I could give Sheena like a, maybe like a Christmas gift, some, some pre-order action, but <laughs> you have two fans here when that link drops, uh, we're, we're buying it for sure. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate the support and, and I hope that it opens more conversations for everyone. I think it will. Um, well, hang, I saw a recent interview in which you described the challenges that you and your family went through as Vietnamese refugees and some of the personal obstacles you faced growing up in Louisiana. Can you share some of that story for us and the listeners? Oh my, how much time do you have? Well, well, I'll tell you briefly, um, my parents were almost 50 when they immigrated over here and they had to make gut-wrenching decisions in a matter of weeks, days, hours, um, life changing decisions, whether or not to leave their parents behind, whether or not to leave uh, one or two children behind, whether or not to make a a leap of faith and literally take a leap of faith and jump on a boat. So the, the most uh, well-known story of mine that I'll share is, um, we lived in Da Nang, which is in the middle of Vietnam. And to leave the country, we all had to get to Saigon, which was the capital. So we're all migrating south, hoping that the country would be safe until until Saigon fell. As we were migrating down, we had to catch a boat from Da Nang to Saigon. And part of that was we were out on a little tugboat and you had to wait until a giant wave would carry you the two to three stories up to the height of the deck of the freighter that could take us down south to Saigon. Well, if you can imagine, there's a single thick docking line that's thrown down, and each person has to wait for that wave to come up, grasp onto the rope, and jump the two or three remaining feet onto the deck. And remember, below you, when the wave goes away, it's two to three stories down. So there were a lot of um, what what... I describe as floating black pants in the sea of women and, and, and girls who didn't make it. I was two years old. So when my mother saw that she wanted to abort, uh, rightfully so, but my 13 year old sister had already taken that leap. And at that point she had already made the decision for the rest of us. There was a uh, very large man um, next to my mother uh, large for an Asian man at the time. And he said, give the baby to me and I'll throw her onto the larger ship. And um, my mother, feeling like she had no choice, did exactly that. And she threw me as a two-year-old baby to another stranger on the deck of the ship who caught me by one chubby little hand. Um, and I talk about that story about, you know, the, the, the singular decisions you have to make in a very quick time. And so when I look at that background, I think about, um, I think about Mary Gordon's quote that a fatherless daughter thinks all things possible and nothing is secure. So I 
typically don't take life for granted, but I will always seize opportunity before the window closes. Um, my experience growing up in the deep South in Louisiana as a result of being a refugee and then an immigrant was living literally as a brown girl in a black and white world. There were, you know, a handful of Asians in the school that I was in. And I was very fortunate that I was very welcomed in that school. However, there was about a six month period of time when I went to another school in another state and faced racism for the first time. And it was, you know, a, a little bit of a painful experience um, because I had not been used to that or exposed to that. And um, the culminating story for that was that every day I would get shoved off of swings um, every morning. And uh, in the afternoons, I was often spit on by uh, by um, by some of the children until one day seven girls decided to surround me, gang up on me and, um, you know, threatened to beat me up. But I leaned into the stereotype of being a Kung Fu kid and just kind of held a horse stance and uh, half of them left out of, you know, just having me call their bluff and the other half, uh, let's just say they didn't bother me again. But I will say that when I left the school, I became friends with all of those girls. And those girls um, were actually part of groups that didn't talk to each other. And I feel like the gift I left behind was that they became friends after I left. And that's the gift of being an outsider. That is such a powerful, unique story. Thanks. First of all, thank you for sharing that. Um, Extremely inspirational, just your courage, your ability to stand strong, your resilience. um, Really, really quite amazing. I'd love to understand like how you took those experiences both in Vietnam and then after you moved to Louisiana and what aspects of that are part of your life today? Well, when I look at that, I look at two things. I look at agility, like I said, you know, making, being able to assess a situation and not being complacent. And the other thing I I think about is um, access. Um, so when we there's you know there's a lot of momentum around diversity and inclusion, but the conversation is incomplete without a discussion about access. Inclusion does not ensure equality. I want to make that really really clear. The journey doesn't end when you get an invitation to the room because you're not clear about are you serving, are you sitting, are you speaking? Do you have equal access to opportunity and resources? What's your role? If you're not clear, then get clear and get an understanding from your mentors, sponsors, allies, and role models so you can prepare accordingly. Um, You know, it used to be that success was really based on um, information, but we're lucky with the advent of the internet and companies like Juniper who build the infrastructure for all our connections. Information is plentiful. So it's really democratized access, but there's still access in terms of, um, people and resources and voice. Let me ask you, what do you think a minority is? Again, I'll I'll often ask people, is it race? Is it gender? Is it age? Is it tenure? Being a minority simply means being a smaller group of people in a room. If there is a baby shower, I guarantee you, the guys are going to be the minority in the room. And when I look at that, I look at, you know, 
how much voice do minorities get? No matter who you are, what station you are, if you are the if the, you represent the least number of people in the room, you're going to have less voices. So the way I describe it is in a bowl of yellow Skittles, a blue one's going to stand out, which is great for branding, but not for belonging. In a bowl of multicolored candy, we're all the same. We're all misfits and we all have the same voice. So representation absolutely matters. And once you have that representation, access to voice matters. All right, everyone. In every episode, we have a data breakout, a quick sidebar to look at the data. Thriving in sales means overcoming challenges every single day. And it's often those obstacles that show us what we're really made of. When the going gets tough, do we fold or double down? But where does that resilience come from? What makes some people able to persevere and even excel despite incredibly difficult circumstances? And what can the rest of us learn from them? The results of a 32-year study uncovered a connection between grittiness and an internal locus of control. In the study, which was published in 1989 by a developmental psychologist, Emmy Werner, a group of 698 children were monitored for exposure to stress, things like poverty and family problems. Of the kids considered at risk, about two-thirds of them developed serious learning or behavior problems over time. But the remaining one-third grew into competent young adults, achieving success both at school and at home. So what was it that set these kids apart? The resilient kids had what psychologists called an internal locus of control. The belief that they, not their circumstances, affected their achievements. That they were the orchestrators of their own fates. This means that our own beliefs have a tremendous impact on our ability to overcome challenges. Stay tuned to the micro action at the end of the episode for tips on how you can help your team build resilience and rise to their true potential. I'm like processing. If I could pause for a second, this is uh, in the best way possible, uh, overwhelming. And I mean that in the best way. I hope you know what I mean, Hang. Uh, I do. I'm admittedly processing this a lot slower than most uh, of our interviews, and I'm trying to come up with the right question, but I'm still thinking. So I just, I just wanted to be uh, reciprocate a level of vulnerability here and just let you know why I'm uh, a little slow right now. I know. I appreciate that. And, and um, I think part of that is why, um, and I know we're kind of riffing a little bit here, but part of this is the competitive edge of bringing on people with adverse backgrounds. I get very upset when people throw around very nonchalantly, don't be afraid to fail. If you come from an adverse background, if I fail the first time, it might represent every penny that I have. I don't get to go back to daddy and ask for another million dollar check. So people with adverse backgrounds, we tend to be really judicious but we tend to also move very agilely. Can you imagine if my mother didn't make that decision to throw the baby on the boat? Right. So um, I think being, you know, don't be afraid to fail is knowledge. How many times? That is so true. Yeah. How many times have you heard that? Right. Right. There's an assumption that you're going to get another opportunity. If I am a minority, you know, requesting a business loan and I fail in my business, I'm, it's going to be much harder for me to go back and get a loan. If I am, uh, if I get an internship through one of my mother's executive connections, I'm, there's probably not another connection. You know what I mean? So we have to be a lot more judicious. And I also talk about 
you know, when you guys, and I think I veered off course a little bit, but the, the right answer to the original question you asked me is how does that, how does that culminate in my life right now? When I look at the teams that I've led, I've almost always had the most diverse teams because, and I always in a, in a meeting room, because I was often diminished um, and marginalized and unheard, I call upon the minorities in the room, whether they're men or women or white or minorities, doesn't matter. I call on the smaller population because when you do that, those are the people who are sitting back and listening and they're the people who are the least susceptible to groupthink. So Hank, um, you know, you've been in this position probably earlier in your career as an individual at an individual as a company, what would be your guidance to sales reps, to individual contributors, to folks who are at a company who are trying to rise up in the organization? They may have come from a different background. They may be that minority in the room. Mm-hmm. What advice would you have for them? Well, I believe there are two stages in your career. The first stage, and that should carry through uh, as you as you continue to rise. I would say it's really important. Um, I have written an article on LinkedIn about earn it, own it, evolve it, and what that means is, you know, again because of the background that I come from, it's always been really important for me to earn my seat at the table. I don't come in, and I actually don't like when I come in with instant credibility that I haven't earned. So I recommend that you just get really damn good at what you do, earn it and then own it. And what I mean by owning is own the accountability behind it. Admit when you have mistakes, which will actually give you a little bit more power because people know that you're thinking from all sides and then also come up with solutions, obviously, but then I also think what's really important is to is to continue to evolve it. People get really, once they are in a position, they get sort of complacent. If you've ever been academically competitive, um, music, dance, athletically competitive, you know that once you get that blue ribbon, you don't get to stay there. An Olympic winner doesn't get to win every single Olympic afterwards. They still have to continue owning it and earning it. Right. But the last part I would say is they have to evolve it. Meaning no matter what sport or competition you're in, technology is going to change. Um, You have to keep staying up with the times. And that means bringing in other people around you. Um, And I always say, don't strive for uh, strive for better, not perfect. Because if you strive for perfection, you're assuming there's an end goal. Perfect should always move. So evolution is really important. So that's the, that's kind of how I would recommend to people um, to stay relevant within your own career and profession, but also to help serve your customers and your stakeholders remain relevant. What use are you to your customer? If what you tell them today is irrelevant tomorrow. Right. And that's where I think technology, modernizing the tool stack, bringing in um, um, the emergence of AI for for operations is going to be huge for the sales industry in the next um, in the next few years. Now, the next part of your career, and this is where um, this is where people struggle, myself included. My career plateaued for quite a long time. Um, for obstacles, external and internal within myself. I hated the thought of networking. It felt gross to me. It felt icky. I do not want to work my net. It makes me feel like I need to take a shower. So I had to figure out when my career was stagnating, what was I doing wrong? 
Um, and I thought, well, I've always succeeded through meritocracy. So why don't I just work harder and work harder and work harder until I worked myself into the ground, into the ER. And let me tell you, I took that viewpoint because I thought I was that good. It turns out I took that viewpoint because I was that arrogant and you have to get over that. Networking matters, not because it's icky, but because you need to bring in collaboration and wisdom from others around you. So that's what I think individuals can do for themselves, for their stakeholders and for their customers. I mean, invite your customers to collaborative conversations. You don't have to talk to them about, you know, what's best about your solution and then shut up for a moment so that they can tell you about you, you know, give them space to help co-create and innovate. Now, on the flip side, what advice would you have for managers, leaders of teams? They may be trying to build a diverse team. Um, They have folks who are or they're trying to attract folks onto their team who come with these unique and different perspectives. Um, What advice would you have for them? Um, let's talk a little bit about the myth of the leaky pipeline, um, that there's not enough diverse talent out there. Well, how can that be when we graduate more women than we do men? Then there's the argument of, well, women leave when they have children. Is that really true? Do we ask them why they leave when they have children? I can tell you, uh, from my perspective, I left and created my own company, not because the work was hard, but because navigating the political Uh, spectrum was difficult. So I could have easily become one of those statistics, but I wanted to come back and bring others with me. So there has been a lot of work and effort around, um, good work and effort around mentorship and sponsorship. It still puts a lot of the onus on the individuals. What I would like to see is more work around allyship and cultivating role models. Why is that important? Mentorship and sponsorship is still a very individualistic motion. You need allies and role models to make a revolution, to really effect meaningful change for an entire class. So allies can affect change with the leverage that they have. Think of any social transformation in history. It can only be realized when those in power spoke out on behalf of an entire underrepresented class. Think about, you know, MLK could not have succeeded without JFK. Conversely, JFK could not have could not have succeeded without the amplification from MLK. And the reason I bring that up is, you know, we look at um, having allies from the majority, but we don't also don't we're not curating enough um, role models from the minorities. Who can people look up to? If you look at executive sponsors of um, IND, who who's in that circle? Because no no matter how well-meaning, sorry, Devin, the white male can be, if he's the executive sponsor, he can't actually advocate to an experience he doesn't have. So he needs a partner who can hold him true, who can sh- help share the experience. Um, and if you don't have someone who is of a diverse background who can help lead with your IND experience, Get a co-sponsor. And if you, you know, if, if the, the complaint is often, well, we don't have a co-sponsor that's high enough in title, go down in title. That's okay. That's what you're going to have to do. I don't have any in my organization. Well, first of all, shame on you. And secondly, go to another organization because you cannot represent an experience that you haven't had. 
So those would be, you know, some things that I think about is we really, really need to make sure we, we look at allyship and, and curating those role models to make sure that they have a voice so that others can look up to them. Because, you know, without that partnership, we run the risk of, um, we run the risk of not um, putting any accountability on, on those who, who wish to lead. I always have this question hanging. I think um, I don't think that it's on the individuals to coach. Okay, air quoting guys like me or in even more senior positions, right? It's almost unfair to say, okay, well then how should I, how should I be a better ally? And yet here I am showing my vulnerability and wanting to ask you, how can I be a better ally? I think the example of uh, you know sponsors and role models is is a, a good start. Is there anything else I can keep in mind? as we go into 2021, as I'm a hiring manager, as other listeners are as well, is, I don't know, is it maybe defining what a true ally is and what it's not? Is it like, hey, here's some easy things you can get started? I'd love to hear hear from you if it's uh, not too hypocritical by how I started that that, that sentence. No, look, I, I really appreciate it. Um, I think this, the, the, the first thing you have to do is just to have really open conversations, really, really open conversations. And that includes calling on, the minorities in the room. And let me tell you, uh, in the Bay Area, in a room full of engineers, the white guy might be the minority in the room. And that's okay. But have that conversation and call on call on those people who uh, may be a little bit more um, reserved about sharing their voice. And I say reserved and not timid. They're not being timid. They're being smart. Um, and I, and I, I, you know, give them space to have a voice. Um, and I would say really look for look at curating your role models. One of the reasons I have such a diverse team is the more diverse talent I bring in, the more they bring in their friends. Everyone wants right. and that everyone wants to be a Skittle and they want to pick what color Skittle they want to be. And it's kind of fun. Um, as far as, you know, what else, what else we can do. Um, I think when you, when you see something, call it out in general, I believe in APIs, assume positive intent. And, um, I, you know, but if you see a certain behavior, you have to call it out and, and mention it with not, you know, you don't have to be a jerk about it, but mention it. Hey, I noticed that, um, let's say, let's say in a meeting, someone um, takes credit for an idea. Well, thank you for reiterating what Sheena just mentioned, but we have to, if you see something, you have to call it out. And sometimes you have to be more blatant than that. Bob, 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 this is the third time you've interrupted Sheena. And the thing is, sometimes people don't even notice it, use their name, because people cognitively have an ear to hear their own name. So, um, and again, I, I think it's really just about awareness and um, awareness and, and, and having those conversations. The, the, the coaching I heard was, it's, it's up to me, Devin, to be aware of these things, but it, then it's up to me to share that awareness, you know, in those examples that happen all the time sometimes consciously, oftentimes unconsciously, or, you know, with no ill uh, intent behind interrupting someone or well, stealing ideas, usually a little more, a little more vicious than accidental. Uh, but, but that is, uh, that is very helpful. Well, the other thing is just remember, we can all be allies. So um, I think about when, when I, I used to, uh, as part of my consulting agency, I used to run diversity workshops as well. I would do the same with women, by the way, Sheena, 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 it's the third time you've interrupted Devin. 
when you're in the majority of the room, it's just easier to feel comfortable having voice. So I really want to disaggregate um, the male-female conversation, the, 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 the color conversation, and I want to kind of center around what is, where's the population of power? Where's the density of power? Where's the density in the room? It, it has more to do with that than, um, than, than, um, than, again, I think people's malicious intent. And in, in, in that regard as well, I look at minorities to be allies to, um, to very pe- well-meaning people in the majority, where I feel like it's my job um, to ensure that people don't demonize other populations when they're not in the room. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's like an interesting role like that minorities can also play as allies to other minorities. Um, you know, you, you understand like there's, there's some commonality. You may not have the same background or have been raised the same way and you, and you face different adversities for sure, but you have something common there that you can stand up for one another in these different scenarios. Um, so that, that that's a lens that I like to try to carry with me in, in different scenarios, especially um, in the workplace. Yeah. And, you know, I think we also, um, Devin, here's, here's a, here's um, an interesting take that you'll like. When I wrote the book, originally I was thinking about women in general. And then I thought about, well, there's some experience I can't speak to. So then I kind of narrowed it down to minority women. And then I thought about that further um, just because I grew up in the deep South does not give me permission to speak about um, a white experience or even a black experience in poverty of endemic, you know, multi-generational poverty. The only thing I can speak to my direct experience is being an immigrant. So when we talk about what can I do about it, I think that people need to um, keep in mind that we cannot project what we believe to be other people's experiences. I can only talk to my experience and I can have empathy for other people's experiences, but I cannot pretend to understand and I never will completely understand. And I think just having that level of vulnerability and authenticity is so welcomed, especially in the divisive um the divisive nature that we find uh, the world in today. Um, I, there's, there's hope and opportunity for us to come together. I believe that. I believe that. And I agree with that as well. And uh, yeah, this, this is what people want. I think too, right. People don't want, like you said, superlatives or uh, you know, let me speak on behalf of you. It's let me just share what I know. Let me share exactly what I've been through. And even someone uh, like me who, who does not share much, if any of the stories that you described today, Hank, doesn't mean I didn't enjoy it any less and doesn't mean that it hasn't inspired me or moved me any less, if anything, probably even more so, even more so. And I think that uh, that's something we can all get behind. Um, We always ask one question to wrap up, Hang, and I'd love to get your take on it because I have a feeling, no pressure, that you're going to give me an answer that we haven't heard before, (laughs) which is how would you describe sales in one word? Hmm. Serving. Great word. Would you like, now that I've asked you to say it in one word, would you like to elaborate? Completely optional. Absolutely. Um, I think at the end of our day, at the end of the day, we have the privilege of helping our customers um, achieve their business outcomes. 
to drive to their outcomes. And, you know, that's a really, really special place. I came from, you know, nearly 10 years of engineering, nearly 10 years of marketing and coming up on nearly 10 years of sales. And I have to say that because we are the closest, we're the last mile to the customer, we also get the privilege of reaping the highest reward. Um, Of course, you need a quality product, but at the end of the day, people buy from people. And they buy from people who can problem solve and problem find, and we get that privilege. We're serving. I love it. That is so amazing and fits very well with our whole conversation today. So unexpected or no? <laughs> Perfect. There, there's no, yeah, unexpected is uh, <laughs> is a high bar. Like wh- wh- who knows what Devin's expecting and, wh- and what I expect shouldn't, shouldn't matter. Um, <laughs> but no, this was, this was great. Honestly, Hank, thank you. Uh, this was a great conversation. I took away a lot of it. I am thoroughly excited for your book. I feel like I'm going to get, uh, you know, pe- peel back a few more layers of black ops and really understand you and, um, you know, bring some of those ideas to uh, myself, my team and, and Gong this year. Well, fantastic. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you, Hank. Every week, we like to bring you a micro action, something you can think about or put into play. While sales leaders can't directly control their team's level of resilience, they can have a positive impact on it. Here are some things you can do right now to help your team develop more grit. Be a role model and lead by example. Be an ally. Have open conversations and give your people the space they need to have a voice and be heard. You can call on those who may be more reserved and give them opportunities to expand their comfort zone. And finally, consider that a don't be afraid to fail mindset might not be realistic for someone whose past adversity may have had devastating consequences. Hey, Devin here. Can I make a super quick ask? I bet our VP of sales that we can get to 100 podcast reviews before Q1 ends. That's March 31st for us. It's a gentleman's wager for bragging rights because I love telling him I told you so. And we're already at 73 reviews. So I'm hoping you can help push us over the edge. All you have to do is take 27 seconds to give Reveal a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's that simple. I appreciate it. And thanks for the help. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.